Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Doric, suppliers of window and door hardware to homes and apartments across Australia, New Zealand and Asia. This week we're chatting to a two-time Bathurst 1000 winner. He's a Doric ambassador as well, it's Will Davison. But Will came up with so many good stories, there were just too many to fit in the one podcast. So how did we fix that? Well, we've made two. In part one, we chatted about his years trying to crack Formula One and his very early days in V8 supercar racing. Now, there's a couple of tales to listen out for here. The story of how Will Power once had him by the throat, yes, by the throat, after a race at Donington in England. The deal he cut to pay off his debts from chasing that F1 drive and just how long it took to pay it off. How he scored a supercar's drive through a chat on a nightclub dance floor. I kid you not, true story. Now, if you put in a couch racer question for Will 2, stay tuned. They'll be in part two of our chat with Will. That's coming soon. But for now, buckle up. It's time to start part one of Will Davison on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Dory. Will, there's so much for us to cover. Thanks for coming into Sleuth HQ today. I wanted to start, we like to start right between the eyes with something you haven't probably thought about for a while. So when I think of your international career in open wheelers, I think the bit that everyone forgets, they remember that you tested an F1 car, that you won in British F3, that you raced against Lewis Hamilton, but I think everyone's forgotten that you tested very quietly, it was reported later, for Mercedes and Renault's junior teams. Now, had history been really different, where on earth could you have ended up? (laughs) Exactly. Um, Amazing. Bringing me back there, it feels like another lifetime ago, but... uh Definitely. I'll never forget the moment. So we'd, you know, completed the British Formula Renault Championship in 2002. So this is 2002, yep. 2002, and it had a pretty good debut year, I suppose. That year for us was about learning the culture, learning the circuits. You know, I'd come out of 1600 Formula Ford in Australia, uh, slick tyres, aero, all those circuits, and just, just feeling our way over there. So I suppose to have finished that year fourth in the championship, um, you know, quite a few podiums and front row qualifyings. Um, you know, we'd missed the winter series, so to speak. So my teammate Rob Bell was sort of the favourite going into the series because he'd won the winter series. A bloke called Lewis Hamilton was second in the winter series. <laughs> that worked out for him okay, <laughs> yeah. I think. So then I started the, the, the main championship and, um, you know, had a bit of catching up to do. But, uh, you know, we, we put together a pretty good year. And by the end, we were pretty known on the scene in the UK. Um and then it was only like a week or so after the round and this was my first real introduction of knowing how small the world is over there and how close you are to Formula One yet how far away you are. And, uh, you know, at this stage, um, Mercedes' presence in Formula One was less. They obviously had the engine side of things with McLaren. Uh, but in Formula Three, they had no involvement. They were big in DTM uh, and they were looking to get into the Formula Three series with an engine. And I just remember getting a call from um, Gerhard Unger's PA or... It, and this was HWA, wasn't HWA. it? The racing arm of AMG. So this is the, this is the brand that started 
Michael Schumacher in sports cars and Carl Wendlinger and Heintel Frensen and young drivers had come from their ranks to go all the way through. So this is, and this was all a little bit, you'd already tested for, I think, Alan Docking's team at that stage, but yeah. this was all a little bit under the radar that, these guys were, were calling, and you went and tested. Yeah, that's right. And it was uh, Norbert, Norbert Haug as well. And you, you, you hear these names and a German lady ringing you and pretty much wanting to book you a flight um, to fly over to HWA to Germany to, to have a one-on-one meeting. So uh, I look back on this now and you think, how could I have been better prepared? Or, But you can't. You can only be yourself. But I'll never forget that. And uh, I remember walking into HWA and, you know, very, very, um, you know, very, very sort of how do you say a German way which is a bit of a culture shock for any young Aussie going over there into those quarters and the way they do business and the way they talk and they're pretty matter of fact and and pretty full on but uh, yeah it was an eye opener they ran the DTM program out of there so uh, they just had this Formula 3 car sitting there that they'd leased and hired from Mooka Motorsport Uh, they didn't run a Formula 3 car themselves but they literally leased a car Dallara they'd obviously designed and built their own engine and they wanted to test some young drivers for their program so um yeah went and did that test at hockenheim it was a three-day test um and it was funny because the the champion of formula renault that year was danny watts the runner-up was jamie green and third was lewis hamilton and myself fourth so it was funny that danny jamie and myself were testing and so Lewis wasn't. The, the other bloke was okay. I, th- I think he had a deal good to go for the rest of his career with McLaren. But exactly. So you, you do the test. Does anything come of it? Or was it a thanks for coming? That was really nice. See you around. What was the scenario? Um, I, I do remember it well. And I remember Lacey and uh, Bern Schneider were testing the DTMs. And we were literally in a garage with them. Like there were six trucks as I pulled up. And being a part of that big program, I was absolutely packing myself. Um, really weird. There was no real help or guidance. It was I remember it being really wet and uh, I was in day two uh, of the test and I had just done a a test with Alan Docking, like you said, back at Silverstone. And um, I remember spearing off uh, as you come into the stadium section there. Every time I look at it to this day, I look at the Grand Prix and that gravel trap at that fast (laughs) right-hander into the stadium. And I just remember being pretty quick. I remember being on edge um, and I spun it once and got going. And then I beached it again. And I remember being on the radio. These guys could barely speak English. And I could just hear in their voice that it was like, here's just this young kid that's just made a meal of made a meal of it, you know. <laughs> but I remember coming in and I was so sheepish. Like you can imagine how much pressure was on me. And uh, in these wet conditions, I mean, an F3 car like that, pretty hard to drive. And I just couldn't believe how quick the car had got away from me. And... Yeah, I sort of asked, how do, you, how do you think I went? And they said, listen, uh, the engineer was, he goes, you you are super fast. You're quicker than the other guys. But, you know, two mistakes like that. And um, so I, I, that's that's all I really remember from that test. There was no, no real personal interaction with many people. It was very proper, get in, do the job. And we did hear from them. And there was an opportunity to do the, the German uh, or the Euro series the following year. I remember getting that call when I came back to Australia. It wasn't a fully funded seat. It was, you know, but heavily subsidised. Um, and at that point, I asked, where's this taking Where's this taking me? What's this for? And it was very, very clear that they were breeding their future DTM drivers. And I was very determined at that stage um, 
to go Formula One. And I had some big promises from some people that were looking after me over there then at that stage. And we had, we thought, some pretty big contacts within Renault, um, within, you know, to do the British series in British Formula Three. And I was really firm on keeping my um, path, you know, direct to Formula One. Um, and not not necessarily having a sidetrack to, to DTM. So, um, yeah, interesting times. So you do do the deal with Alan Docking. You race 2003 for his team. You do win a race along the way at Croft, which is a place that you seem to really click with. A lot of our listeners probably have never heard of it, let alone seen it, maybe some yeah. British touring cars there over the years. But then you end up doing a Renault driver development test. That was the end of 2003, I think, wasn't it? So you've had two big brands... Ironically enough, who are now big brands in Formula One on your radar back in, you know, this is 16 or so years ago. Time's flown. How did that one come about? Was there anything that could have led to something there? Or yeah, that that was the close one. To be honest, that's the one to this day that I've got no regrets because, um, you know, I think within ourselves, um, as in, you know, um, you know my personal backers back in Australia and my dad and, and everything we did to to do that learning year in Formula Renault to scrape the funds together to to get ourselves on the scene to then do a deal with Doco which he was really helpful to young Aussies um, you know definitely running with Doco you, you were cer- certainly um, compromising a lot of things to some of the big teams over there uh, but certainly very keen on helping young Aussies um, so getting that deal over the line and uh, being again another story but being teammates with Scott Speed sort of the first year Red Bull had a young driver program from America and uh, you know who would have thought that the presence Red Bull would have in the in the following few years but I remember Scott telling me typical naive American at that stage and uh, you know he was sort of uh, yeah yeah I'm going to be I'm going to be in Formula 1 with Red Bull in two years and like I'm just sort of going, mate. You've just arrived here. Like, do you understand the way it works over here? And um, you know, and I got on with Scott really well. But you know, it was all just it was just going to be easy for him. And sure enough, there two years later, there I'm back in Oz, and there he is with Toro Rosso on the grid in Melbourne. Um, pretty incredible the way Red Bull came in with such force. But uh, that year with Docos, uh, up and down. I'll never forget. Uh, you know. Now I wish I knew more about Formula 3 cars, much in a weird sense like a V8 supercar, but a really, not temperamental, but a super, super sensitive car to go fast in. And I just remember jumping in in a couple of pre-season tests and the car came alive and I topped a couple of the early tests at Donington and... I remember Marcus Simmons, like the Autosport guy, had me like this big article at the front of Autosport and there was sort of all of a sudden you're, you're on everyone's doorstep. Um, if you perform at that level in that era in particular, I think times have changed a bit, but if you were performing, opportunities were there. And I was sort of, I won't say doing it with ease, but I thought I, I can do this Formula 3 deal and first few rounds were super hit and miss and I didn't really understand engineering probably as well as I should have then but we had a particular window with that car which is another good story from 12 months on when Will Power ended up in that car which we do joke about now as to what he had to change to that car to get it to help him out which is another great story but uh, we rocked up at Croft and just suited those conditions on that day it was only my fifth ever British Formula 3 race qualified on pole by a mile, won by a country mile. mile and, and thought, 
this is pretty easy. I reckon we could do more of this. This is good. Yeah, well, pretty much. But, yeah, it just suited those conditions. And we had a pretty good run the next four or five rounds. You know, we had a bunch of top fives and at Silverstone and Knock Hill and um, Alton Park and had some pretty good runs. Um, then it got real stale the year. Although I was head of my teammate, Scott, who was a good driver. And, you know, we were struggling. It was – pressure was on. And uh, I ended the year, fortunately, being able to do a round or two with the Menu Motorsport, um, which was a car that had been quite competitive and you know oh we were nearly um done and dusted but you know my backers were like well you know let's just get you in a car that we know is quick and see what you can do boom i topped the official test at brands qualified on the front row finished second at the last round of pk jr and sort of you know just made me think wow like if you're in the right situation you know here we are and that led to then the renault test you're talking about so where was that who was it with how did that all come to be and what came of it um, yeah, exactly. That was a, you know, it was a two-day test and basically um, it was just before Korea and Macau, which I was going to go do, but we, we thought, you know, we still needed a, a small amount of budget to get to these test days and we thought we were much better to, you know, the budget we had set aside for that to put into this Renault test and uh, run by High Tech, a team called High Tech, which were running their junior program in, in the UK at that time. And Renault was at that stage the program you had to get in. I mean, that was before I think Toyota had a program with Briscoe. Uh, Red Bull was just new, but there wasn't the young Renault program, uh, Red Bull program at that stage. Um, so that was the, the one where you really had to get in. And uh, I couldn't to this day. I look back at those two days and I topped both days. One was at Snetterton. The next day was at Alton Park. Um, Lucas Degrassi was in the other car. We had Who's uh, now a, a front runner in Formula E and That's F1 right. Who went to Formula so there's 1. There's plenty of names that you came across in your time over there that our listeners will go, oh yeah, I heard of him. Yeah, exactly. I know, I know him. Yeah, but I remember the day at Alton and um, I mean, I'd raced that year in F3 so I was fresh out of a car and it's probably the best day I've ever had. Like I ended up four tenths clear that day and Hamilton had just stepped out of Formula Renault. They were all preparing for Macau so Lewis was there, Kubica was there, Rosberg was there in a Carlin car. All the biggest names you'll get came because they were running for British teams at Macau coming up in only a few weeks. So I topped the day by four tenths. I had, um, as I said, Degrassi and Richard Antonucci I think in the other cars next to me and I loved the car just absolutely nailed it and uh you know it's it's a corrupt political world over there and um from the engineering point of view i was sort of told that you know things would be looking really good and uh i had a manager that was but looking involved good for with what Renault. looking good for well what? to get the into the into program. the Renault young driver program they would be putting their recommendations forward to Renault as to who they thought was the who best. would then pay for it who would then fund the bill? So yeah. we were completely tapped out. We're at the end. We'd done a year of British F3. We no were money left. massively, massively in debt. Um, we'd sold our souls and we were ready. I was ready to go. I think with the right car, you know, I'd done all the, you know, all the, all the work in the UK with the circuits, the culture, and with the right opportunity. Um, you know, I'd been podiums in British F3, but yeah, I think I was a shot to win the title that next year, um, which is whether you make it or break it. It's the same for any driver, but we knew we'd given ourselves the best shot. and uh, But I knew we were completely reliant on that and uh, we were waiting, 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 uh, not hearing anything. Mark Weber, I was spending a bit of time with then and he was obviously managed by Flavio and a guy called Bruno. Bruno Michel. Bruno Michel. Yep. Who ultimately made the, uh, the end decision and... Um, 
I remember I just wasn't hearing anything. I had a manager called Krista Havis. They they had a sponsorship program where they were managing some of the the major sponsors in Formula One. One particular being. Hanjin for memory on Renault. The Renault F1 team with Alonso and, and I'm sort of thinking, how how hard can this be to just manipulate a bit of the sponsorship to get me in the program? Oh, you know, the I'm young, sort of the young bloke from Australia's got it but all I'm figured. I'm thinking out. I might be on the right end of you know, which is the way the world goes around. You know, sometimes you're on the right end, sometimes you're on the wrong end of of uh, these sort of negotiations, and it's about who you know. Sometimes right place, right time, and I sort of thought all the stars were aligning, but maybe maybe I was a little naive. I knew I'd. You know, I'd performed when it counted, and um, <clears throat> I'm not privy to too much. All I know is Mark Weber rang me, uh, I think it was day or two before Christmas, and I really appreciate that to this day, but he sort of just checked up. You know, I'd seen him a lot that year. You know, he'd been testing at, you know, at Silverstone. He'd invite me out to go and, um, you know, stand in the Jag garage when he was running around, and he'd always ring you, even if he'd just done a Grand Prix. I look back now and realise he was only in his second year in Formula One. So he had his whole world ahead of him and the pressure he must have had. But he'd always ring ring up and check on you and see how you were going. And now I look back and you just looked at him as this Formula One superstar at that stage. But now you actually see how early in his actual career he was, you know, in at that stage and he was still really caring for young drivers. But he rang and said, I can't remember the exact words, but, mate, pretty much, uh, you know, start planning something else. You know, I've, I've spoken to Bruno, I've spoken to Flavia, it's... It's it's not your it's gig. Not you. Lucas Degrassi's got it, and I, I don't know the exact reasons and political reasons in Brazil and Renault road cars. Who who knows how all that world works? Maybe they like something else about him. But yeah, Mark broke the news to me, and that's that's when I felt like my uh, my world collapsed. You know, everything we'd you know everything we'd uh, put into that pro- you know overseas program. Um, yeah, and we were it's that one break. You either get or you don't, and uh, we didn't get it. We didn't give up at that stage, but I knew it was going to be a pretty steep hill from that moment. But you did get to put your backside in a Formula One car and a period car, i.e. not a 10-year-old one later on down the track that some guys have been lucky enough to do. So 2004, you do, you and Will Power, get to drive a Minardi, a, a then-current Minardi at Masano in, in Italy. Yeah. Not too many people I've sat across a room with who've driven a Formula One car that was the current car at the time. How on earth do you describe to the layman, myself, listeners, what's a Formula One car of that era? So we're talking V10 era, like yeah. back when they were oh, the real deal. What are the, what's that like to drive? Can you put it into words without taking nine years to try to explain <laughs> it? Because I'm sure there's so many elements. But how do you get your head around that? Um, pretty amazing. So, well, yeah, just 2004 and we got back to British F3 for half a season. But this whole test with Minardi was based on being currently racing in, in uh, you know, in open wheelers in and, Europe. And Paul Stoddart, the Aussie Paul team. Paul Stoddart and the Australian Grand Prix Corporation came together, called Will Power and myself into the office at the Grand Prix Corporation, said this was our incentive, our prize at the end of the year to keep us going, you know, help us, uh, help raise some interest, some funds, whatever it was to stay over there. And, uh, you know, I'd had to come home mid-year in 04. I'd got four or five podiums out the gate in British F3, but we were so far in debt. There was a couple of really key instrumental people that got me back over there. Um, The guys at Menu Motorsport, um, Alain Menu himself, Mike Baker, um, which was a really interesting interesting story never to burn your bridges but we you know we'd gone racing without paying 
paying for it and we just had to stop because we were so far in debt, which we later always said and always promised we'd pay that debt and we did. took a long time. Uh, but, yeah, it still led to that dream. I had that Formula One test, you know, there to look forward to, that carrot to work towards. And uh, I'd come back. Um, I'd done the endurance races at that stage. I had a V8 supercar team, Team Dynamics, saying, come and race, you know, V8 supercars, come and do a test. And I'd gone and had a bit of a, you know, a bit of a play in the V8. Um, but I always knew um, – but I had that Formula One test and I always had in a contract that I'd signed at that stage if, you know, on the craziest of chances something comes up in that world, you know, that's my out clause in the contract. So I'd never given up to that point and that test was incredible. Like, um, yeah, it was two weeks after the Brazilian Grand Prix in a pretty cool era of Formula One, I'd say 2004. You still see a lot of lap records, although it was the Minardi, um, you know, for them, they were pretty proud of that car. They'd been off the back row, ahead of the Jags, the Jordans, I think, in the last few rounds. They're only like two, two and a half seconds off the Ferrari in Brazil. Um, so it was as you know, a really good Minardi car for um, for their budget, their operating budget. And you actually go to their workshop. They had some brilliantly smart people there. They had the latest Cosworth V10 engine. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a big week of testing. And I just remember rocking up there um, – doing the seat fit and then heading to heading to Masano in Italy. Uh, I wasn't testing on the first day, but just being there with Will Power, um, who had actually snuck there the week before and done a test in a Formula 3000 because none of us <laughs> learnt the circuit. Oh, you two, competitive always. Yeah, well, he had, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was getting um, support uh, from Mark and Ann Neal now. And, you know, it was competitive. Which young Aussie was, was going to get the seat? Which young Aussie were fighting over the same funds back here in Australia? Um, so it was cutthroat. I remember uh, we're just standing there watching this thing, though, and the noise and the scream when the car's on the track on its own is so intimidating when you're on this pit wall you're just like am i going to bloody drive that thing tomorrow you are kidding like it is unreal as a kid like just the ultimate you know dream for you but i was so nervous it was actually our our turn so um at the point of oh, i think i'm gonna be sick oh, this is this is a culmination of a young driver's karting and junior career you are driving a formula yeah. one bloody car yeah yeah i mean that's a big thing to get your head around, let alone then do the job and yeah. actually drive. But what's it like to drive? Yeah, well, I mean, how many, how, how much grunt did it have? It's, like, what, it's amazing. 900? No, no, 900, 900. I mean, the, that year, the the Ferraris, Mercedes, uh, Hondas, you know, they were punching out over a thousand. I'd say. So I'd say the uh, definitely we're in excess of nine hundred horsepower, the customer V ten Cosworth. But um, yeah, I remember you know rocking up, and in one sense, it was. The culmination of all that hard work and everything you dreamed of, but you were ready as well. Like I didn't feel out of place. You know, I'd worked hard at that stage. You know, we'd been on the cusp. I'd been to six, seven, eight Grand Prix in the paddock, uh, meeting teams, and you know, I'd I'd spent a lot of time around the F1 paddock, so I really felt it was my chance. I didn't feel out of my depth at all, um, which is an amazing thing looking back when you're in that bubble, when you're in that Formula One bubble, you feel you belong there, you feel you deserve it, um, and you just got to you just got to grab the opportunity and go. But there's no matter what you've done, um, sitting in that car that first time when it was your time to go, you're just trying to take it in your stride. You're trying to act cool on the outside. <laughs> but inside, when they fired that thing up, and I just I just can physically remember you know, the sequence, the amount of people around the car, the way they 
they fire the car up and and uh, they control the throttle and they're warming it up. Um, seeing those the huge you know tire warmers and Bridgestone tires on the side and the steering wheel, I'm thinking this is it. Like this this is it, you know. And uh, and it's your time to go. Yeah, that first lap, um, just that first time I opened the throttle, I'm just coming out of pit lane, didn't stall it, which was aim number one. <laughs> Drove it slow for a few corners and I just got up the back straight and I just had an installation lap and I just remember just remember going, you know what, I'm just going to nail it. I sort of went second gear, third gear, it was a bit of a scream. I thought, shit, this is accelerating pretty quick. I thought, no, I'm just, I'm just going to go to the board stuff and I'm just going to nail it. this thing. Just, just peg it. it. In simple layman's terms, I'm just going to you know, give this thing the bean, see what it's got and... Uh, uh, you cannot even fathom the just the acceleration, but not in an out of control way, like with the traction control, the gear shift, everything the way the car works. You're not fighting anything. You're just literally sitting in a rocket. And uh, I thought, you know, you, you don't even have one shift light coming up yet, and it sounds like the thing's about to blow up. And next thing, there's another five, six thousand RPM. When you start seeing where to shift gears, uh, the first few times I went third, fourth, fifth, sixth gear, like I just had this smile on my face. It was just absolutely ridiculous. And I remember just jumping off the throttle, and you probably pull about two and a half, two and a half G from engine braking and aerodynamics without even getting on the brakes. So it sort of kicked your head forward without even touching the brake pedal. Just lifting off the throttle. Yeah. So it's probably the, the effects of a V8 supercar braking is what it's like without even hitting the brake pedal. There's so much engine brake and downforce. Um, I'm like, wow, what's this thing going to be like the first time I actually jump on the picks? And, and as the day goes on, that's the bit that absolutely blows your mind is where you were braking. And I, I, my neck wasn't strong enough, but it was just like a Formula 3 car on steroids. I was actually really comfortable driving the car once it took me you know probably one or two runs to just my head to sheer get around the sheer braking and acceleration but everything else well trained i was ready to go i was really comfortable driving the car on the limit which is a good and a bad thing because uh, i felt so ready after that day um we're right on the pace ran some new tires at the end and were quite competitive and my neck couldn't actually cope with the stresses but i remember on my last new tire run i knew i had to go 10 meters deeper at the end of the back straight um so i remember going down the back straight we're doing about 320 i remember seeing the 100 meter board and i'm like you've got to go to 70 or 80 meters like i knew the car could do it because the run before the car had pulled up easily i thought you broke a bit early this set of new tires you are going to 70 meters i don't care what happens you're going and i remember like literally holding my head as i was coming up to the board like hard up against the headrest at the back trying to stop my head going that far forward because it was 5.2 g's or something (laughs) And and it, the car pulled up beautifully. I got it in there, and but it was just yeah, just uh, mind blow, mind blowing stuff. It's we could talk about the open wheeler overseas era of your career forever, um, but obviously you've you've had a, a supercar, a life as well that's actually ended up being quite a long one, and it's still going. But before we jump into that, uh, the willpower topic's a really interesting one because you guys fought in Formula Ford in Australia. You both went to England. You both fought in Formula Three. Um, and then your career sort of split later on. But I've, I vividly remember in those Formula Four days, you guys were big rivals. You were fighting for the championship. But somewhere along the line, the two wills actually realised they actually liked one another. Yeah, they actually became right. mates. But where did that happen? Well, I think even looking, we both look back now, and I think we still even realise the mutual respect that we had in that 2001 season. I mean, it was a insane battle for the series, but we never once crashed besides ripping off a few nose cones and banging a few wheels um it was always amazing racing like it was 
really, really good stuff. And I remember sometimes you race guys that are, are really good, but you see some qualities in their driving. So you don't respect, um, they might get the job done, but you just don't really rate them. You're like, I don't really rate you know, that sort of style or he's a bit dirty or the way they've raced you or whatnot. But that whole year, I remember, um, you know, I was actually talking Will up because I'd actually come in the year before and sort of cleaned up in the year 2000, won all the state series, you know, won the a national round that I'd done in an old car. And Will had been in Formula Ford for a while and um, was sort of known... Yeah, known to a lot of people, but no one really rated him that much. You know, he'd quick kid from Toowoomba, but no one really looked at him as a future superstar, uh, including myself. But you don't know who's got what equipment, who's driving what. Uh, but that year, you know, it really shocked us. The first round at Phillip Island, you know, we thought, you know, we had it in the bag, you know. But, uh, you know, he'd come out with a great package, good engine. And the first round, he really surprised us. And we, we had some crazy races. And, and that was the car Rick Kelly if I remember, That's drove right. the year before, which was the modified Van Diemen, an old 94 that became a stealth from exactly. Brett Lupton in Western yep. Australia. And yep. I think uh, Peter Verhayen had done engines and yep. um, Tony Quinn got on board with some sponsorship with him with VIP Pet Foods. And mm. it turned into an all-year brawl. You ended up winning the championship at the end, but you'd won the title before the last round at Sandown. And, and I remember that you, you ran the number one because you were the champion, but it, it bit you in the backside because <laughs> you crashed. Yeah. But was it that weekend, I think, that the season was over, the shorts were down, and the, the two wheels actually realised, you're actually not a bad bloke. I actually yeah. like hanging out with you, and you've been good mates ever since. Yeah, exactly. Now, we look back and realise we'd come from different walks of life, and he even looks at the way we did some things. We looked pretty flashy that year and that. But, um, you know, there's there's two sides to every story, you know, and uh, we everyone thought we had all these crazy amounts of tyres and uh, running all this special fuel, and we'd write rocket fuel on our jerry cans at the front of our garage, and we'd put set number 215 on our tyres when it was really – I remember rolling out at uh, – Phillip Island, um, we'd done a test. No, we'd done the Grand Prix. I'd won the Grand Prix by a mile, and we rolled out at Phillip Island, and we just set this time out the gate. And the thing was so fast, and Mick Ritter just said, we are pulling those tyres off, and we're wrapping them and sticking them in the truck because I put a new set of tyres on, went a second slower. So then we found this trick some of the times. We are running these old tyres and going better, and everyone's just like, oh, they're just running new tyres all the time. And we're like, yeah, you just keep throwing new tyres on your car. Um, we'll just run our three weekend old you know, things. And uh, anyway, it was, it was all tongue-in-cheek. But, yeah, the racing was incredible. Um, nothing but respect i actually genuinely remember saying guys this this power guy he's bloody good like i'm watching him his car control and i was you know i was pretty confident at that stage i got a good car you know really felt like i was on top of my game but i remember some battles with will and i mean he pushed me to everything and beyond and a few days i didn't you know didn't beat him and some of the moves he did on me down the outside just the way he drove that car i'd i've driven enough against enough people to know that he was the real deal a lot of people had this perception and they didn't really rate him and i'm like trust me this power dude is you know he is good you know what i mean and now you find out over the years how hard he worked every spare day he'd be out at qr or rally driving or trying to apply his trade trying to improve his trade and that's a great lesson for young people is to you know people say oh i used to beat him back in go-karts or i used to beat you will back then or whatever it is if you've got that mentality you're screwed it's how you progress and how you learn and how you constantly continue to better yourself as you go through the ranks and guys like will power who's just obsessed 
absolutely obsessed with being the best. Um, you know, it, it, what he's you know developed on himself is is pretty amazing. So uh, yeah, we had our runnings in. We had both in Europe. Um, he slept on my floor. He didn't have the budget at that stage, and he was sleeping on my floor in England when I was winning British F three. Then the tides turned, and uh, we were on the way out, and he was sort of got some good backing behind him. And uh, yeah, we had some pretty full-on battles in British F3. I mean, Dad grabbed me by the throat once at Donington when he, you know, I'd run him off down the back straight. I remember him running from 200 metres away, screaming at me, going, oh, I would never do that to you. Oh, and he was screaming and running towards me and he was like, pretended to like punch me in the face and I'm like, calm down, Will, calm down. But uh, it was intense to the point where, yeah, the F1 test together, there was funny buggers going on. Like I was not meant to drive the car first he was meant to drive it in the morning. I was the afternoon. It was super cold, zero degrees. He thought he was going to be in an unfair advantage. Next thing, a few phone calls. I got told, you're in the car in 30 minutes. Get in the car. Um, so, you know, it worked out well for both of us. But there was it was intense. We had A1GP test together. And uh, and then he went America. I went Australia. And, you know, you know we've developed an amazing friendship. Um, and uh, we never, ever really fell out. We just pushed each other to great heights. And I've had never had anything but massive respect for him and even the last 10 years you know we speak often and very open with one another and uh, he speaks to me probably more open than a lot of other people because we can download we can vent and uh, we have some amazing chats and i'm yeah i'm I'm will's you know biggest fan really two wills two races (laughs) (laughs) we just should never get you two together it's got to be dangerous well, one day you might end up sharing a supercar together. You never know. You Who never knows? know. Who hey, knows? one thing I wanted to move switch to now. You talked about the team dynamic start for you in supercars. So 2004, you you're done with the cash. By the way, you said you paid it all back. How long did it take you to pay back, and how much did you have to pay back? Because that's a massive amount of money to do those European race programs. Yeah, that's right. We had like an investment uh, scheme. Um, which every time you say scheme, it makes it sound dodgy. <laughs> well, it was it was an it was investment dodgy. program. Will. Investment an investment program. program. Thanks, you, you knew all about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, had some amazing, um, you know, amazingly loyal friends of my dad's that were, you know, one putting their money where their mouth was, but two were out there just shaking the can to mm. all of Melbourne, any businessman they knew, uh, to the point where just after I'd won Croft in British F3, we hosted a big night back here in Melbourne. And uh, I remember Brocky was there. I had Sam Newman there. I remember Shane Warne was there. He was in the middle of his scandal um, in terms of Which his ban. He had yeah, a few. Well, his ban from cricket, whatever, whatever it was for, and they were trying to put him in a positive light with his brother, you know, get him out there, and he was trying to trying to help me. And, um, yeah, some interesting times, but we were out there with all influential, wealthy businessmen and the Grand Prix Corp and some of the efforts we went to to try and get some money out of some backers where they'd invest in my in my future. And, and you pay them back. You pay them earnings. back, basically. Obviously, if it was big time in Formula One, happy days for everyone. But if it was my career went not Formula One, once I was earning over a certain dollar, you'd start paying them back. So, um, yeah, basically it got to my first three years in supercars. I was paying back dribs and drabs to a few of these, you know, these backers, a few, I should say it was probably 30 or 40 of them. Um and it got to the point where I finally yeah. when I went. We're to, talking millions, hundreds of thousands. Oh, I mean, yeah, up up in excess of you know a million dollars. Yeah. Um, so basically, it got to um, a point uh, when I joined HRT, and you know, I I took a bit of a punt because if I wasn't earning money, I didn't have to pay anyone back. But I sort of uh, 
took a bit of a punt and I thought, you know what, I'd rather write to all these people and say, because they're all supporters and friends at the end of the day, hey, how would you guys, you know, like, instead of dribs and drabs for, till 2015 when the sunset clause was, how would you like? 50% of your initial investment just up front in a payment now, you know. And uh, all of them pretty much said, yep, you know, we'd prefer that. So I effectively, um, you know, was able to get a year's payment, you know, and uh, so this and is a bit when, of a loan. So and in essence, HRT paid you before you drove for them in a way. Effectively, yeah. Yep. A year early. Yeah. Let's try that with Very different from where with. I'd come from. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was some certain negotiations I had in that year of 2009, which was a great year, which I basically just lived off a couple of uh, deals I had personally sponsorship deals and sacrificed all my salary for a whole year and, and effectively just tried to, you know, clear my debts, if you like. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I could have then been out and done the next year and, I've, you know, I've paid back all this money, which I didn't actually have to, but it was the right thing to do. And then I had a, you know, a clear clear path going forwards and fortunately here we are in 2019 and you know i'm still fortunately driving so i think it was the right decision to make but it was it was it was a a big thing to to get off and that included the um you know the australian motorsport foundation as well the cams foundation which i'm still to this day i believe the only driver that's ever paid anything back to that um so uh that that was that was that was an interesting one which uh, i was happy to do as long as it went to a good place so let's rewind back to the start of the Supercars era. How does the team dynamic deal that you ended up in late 04, you drove the endurance races for them and a couple of single race rounds, how did that start? Who made the call? Did, were there other teams even ringing you, you ringing them? How did it all kick well, off? Well, that st- stage, only real relationship I'd had uh, with any V8 team was, was Gary Rogers at that stage, who was a, a great backer because of you, mine in Formula Ford. Valvoline sponsorship in Valvoline Cummins Repco and uh, but I wasn't at that stage really never really spoke seriously about doing endurance races or anything or firmly fixed on going to Europe which Gary um, to his credit um, you know at the end of that Formula Ford year um, say what you may about Gary but all I know is you know we had a great year I think represented him and his sponsors well and at the end of that year uh, we were going to the festival, and he basically the Formula Ford festival, the Formula Ford yep. festival at Brands Hatch, yep. and he had no requirement to help me whatsoever. But he sort of I remember him saying to us, you know, you know, you guys have done such a great job this year for us and our sponsors. You know, I'd like to throw you an extra X five thousand dollars or whatever it was to help you get to the festival. Gary did not have to do that, and I remember he went above and beyond to to support us to even go to Europe, not necessarily stay in Australia. So, um, But at that stage, you had no other contact with V8 supercars, but there was one team in those early stages um, that was always on the phone at the end of 03 when maybe media reports were out there that, you know, I'd been doing well, but financially things were tough. So Oscar Fiorinotto was ringing quite, you know, quite frequently at that stage, just any time you come home, please give me a call. Anyone that knows Oscar, incredibly passionate guy, um, maybe too passionate at times, <laughs> but really, really got me my break. You know, he was all for young drivers who've been in Europe. You know, it's what Ambrose had done. You know, it's, it's a really great schooling for young drivers. You know, and they had a, at that stage, a, you know, a team with so much potential, they had a great setup, um, and it all looked, you know, as they showed in those first few years, that they came in with guns blazing and potentially could have been a great powerhouse, that team dynamic. So 
I'm not going to say we were sold the dream because on paper, you know, things were looking good for them. It could have gone either way, but either way, um, yeah, it was as simple as that. I'd come home a week or two, I think, in about July, and Oscar's like, quick, fly to Malala. Um, let's have a run in one of these Vert supercars. Of, of course, I was going to say yes. And uh, I remember I did a couple of laps next to Simon Wills, and then uh, I think I did two on my own, then it was just throw a passenger in, and these things, H-pattern back then, they were a bit of a beast. Um, but, yeah, I was straight into it. I just copied exactly what Simon did, and um, from then on, just took a few passengers, and then in the middle of the day, they're like, oh, I'll give you a couple of laps on your own with a good set of tyres. And I came in and apparently went quite quick. As quick as they'd gone, I don't know, but it was, I was quite competitive, and it was sort of that night on that, um, yeah, Oscar. They sort of said we're going to run you next week at Winton in a wild card in the main game, and I'm like, mate, I've done, I've done 14 rides and three laps on my own in a V8 supercar, and you're sending me in the main game at Winton and in another <laughs> chassis. I mean, I couldn't even change gear in the thing properly, but uh, yeah, it was that third car, and it was pouring with rain. And I remember we had a bit of an electrical issue. I was 10 minutes ten minutes late in the first practice at Winton because we had a problem. And I'm just going out on this hot track. I was still struggling with the roof over my head, the mirrors. Like I was so far out of my comfort, comfort zone. And I've gone straight out with 32 supercars in the middle of their championship campaign. And it's wet. And I remember, I remember Tanda once coming across the bow of me and just sort of running me. A, he didn't even know. He was just as you are in the middle of your supercar, I was just this kid out of my depth. And these guys were on a mission. They were on top of their game, driving these cars perfectly. And I'm absolutely hanging on. I'll never forget how foreign I felt. But I still, I remember finishing like eighth quickest that session. I got in the wet. It was pretty easy to drive. It was just like any car. Um, anyway, we, we did a couple of those races uh, there in Oran Park, which led into the Enduros and, you know, formed a great relationship with Dynamic and was spending a lot of time in Adelaide with Wilsey and, and Oscar and pretty early pretty early on, simply ended up in a two-year contract being put in front of me um, where I was a paid professional. And at that stage, I'd come from hell, like in terms of financially, just was you'd over be, you'd, be, you'd been paying out, but now you could actually oh, get just, paid to drive. Yeah, and I was living the dream. But, I mean, I was so burnt out. I mean, you're doing a lot of driving in England, which sounds crazy now looking back. Uh, but I was just... Yeah, going to racetracks. Oh, you can't get in the car this morning. You know, the money hasn't come through from Australia. And it was just forever a grind. And that's what it is over there. That's what it's all about. But eventually, it was just not having the the funds, the budget, banging down, flying back to Australia every month, going to meetings, you know, banging down every door you could, getting rejected time after time, getting promises and get let down. And I was, you know, I was up for it. But after three years, it would get you down and then to finally be told, here, here's a race car, we can pay you to drive it. You know, you're just... Okay. Okay. And I kind of, <laughs> I remember the first feelings I had in this big, heavy touring car, H-pattern gearbox. You know, people say V8 supercar, you know, big taxis. As a race car goes, not that cool to drive. But my impressions were like, I just spent three, four years in the coolest cars you could ever imagine, Formula 3 cars. They're the most perfectly balanced, wicked little race cars going around. But I was just like, it was a whole new world. And I just remember it was so cool to drive this big beast. I think I was just looking for something different, a new challenge. But, uh, yep, I was I was keen. I was committed. Uh, we, we went on with the deal. Um, and, uh, yeah, with that one clause, like I said, knowing that if something happens in Formula 1, I have an out clause. And we had a good crack after that test. We, we did put some big feelers out there to 
to get a budget together for the Minardi seat. Um, I think Stoddy said you need about six million or you're one and a half to be the Friday tester. Um, and that was up against guys that were bringing 12 and 15. So he wanted an Aussie in there and we tried to hit up some big Aussie companies. And we did have a good little crack for a bit, but um, just, yeah, it wasn't to be. So with the dynamic thing, do you actually sign a deal? Because in 2005, you talked about the circumstances for you changing. Their circumstances changed because I think there was a, a licensed sale or something. Tony Longhurst became involved in Team Dynamic and you were, from memory, you were in Adelaide going to drive at the Clipsal 500 but you didn't get in a car. So so was am I right in remembering that there was a I think Longhurst acquired one of their franchises or something along those lines and your contract was not how did, how did that all work how did you end up on the sidelines at what was supposed to be your first Clipsal 500 pretty crazy um, but it was yeah I was over in Adelaide and we were going to the Grand Prix and I remember we sold a license okay big deal how does that affect me no nope, doesn't but you've got a contract with Dynamic oh at clear that time. as day two year contract clear as day and. Um, unbreakable uh, watertight um so did the grand prix and simon wills didn't drive and i drove the 44 team dynamic owned contract and tony longhurst drove the other one which was 45 45 and uh had a pretty actually good run i literally these are the days you gotta remember i didn't physically sit in a v8 supercar from sunday Night at Bathurst, lap 13, when the thing blew up. You know, I hadn't you know, physically four. changed a gear in a V8 supercars to Friday, uh, Thursday practice at Albert Park. I'd so been in five, Formula six One cars. I'd, I'd been everywhere. And we couldn't even get a test day. It was just front up. Let's go. Again, rookie coming in, not even a test. Now you see all the rookie days and that now. Times were different, and um, but rolled out and had a pretty good... Grand Prix for memory, where we ran in the top 10 and there was an intermediate race and I'd qualified 11th or 12th. Again, enough to make an impression, very luckily. For what that car was, it was a good result. Yeah, and um, that was all pretty normal. Um, but then what happened And then anyway, I remember being in Adelaide for the week and I sort of hadn't been paid, um, but that was all good. It was, ah, you'll be right, you'll be right. And I eventually got, I remember, handed a little bit of a, little bit of a payment. Um, anyway, just carried on with it. Um, Went to uh, went to uh, Adelaide, and next thing it was yeah, no, because Oscar was passionate. He just wanted fast guys in his car. Willsey was there getting ready. I'm I'm there getting ready, and uh, eventually come like the Wednesday night or Thursday. My helmet's in the garage, like everything. You're ready to go, and it's uh, uh, oh no no, you're just driving Tony's car, 45. You know, um, so I'm like yeah, cool, whatever. Um, so I just need you to quickly sign sign something. You know, I'm like, okay, what's going on here? Next thing I'm effectively in the hands of, of Tony. When I had a contract and a deal, it was like, oh, hey, mate, here's a whatever it was. Whatever Tony, it's his business. A five-year management contract, you know, two-year deal, but not getting paid. It was sort of, I'm like, well, no, why am I going to sign that? I've got a deal. I've got this. I've got a deal. Yeah. Anyway, you imagine me. I just wanted to drive. I'm like, oh, screw it. I'll just, I'll just sign it. I just want to drive. And anyway, we had to get our heads together and ringing back home. And it's like, no, no, under all means, do not sign that contract. So anyway, long story short, um, you know, we were willing and able to, to honour our contract, drive the 44, but Willsey was clearly in the 44. Um, and it was very embarrassing. You know, there was press releases out and I had to rock up there Friday morning with my helmet on and ready to get in the car and... To fulfil your uh, fulfil contract. your obligation yeah. and uh, just really unfortunate because I had a good relationship with them, but uh, 
I, it was really all over my head a bit, but I, I couldn't sign the agreement with Tony. At the last minute, he got his mate in, Max Wilson, to drive the car. That's fine, as he would. Um, it was nothing to do with Tony really at all. It was just uh, to do with the dynamic side of things. And unfortunately, from their point of view, he's got his son as the driver and they'd committed to me. So a pretty unfortunate set of circumstances, which did drag on for quite a while, um, unfortunately, and you know worked in our favour because I had a I had an ironclad contract, um, simple as that, and it was only settled many 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 months later. Um, but in the meantime, luckily, you know I'd been able to do enough to attract DJR Sunday night in Adelaide on the beers at a nightclub. It's where all the good deals Stevie happen. Stevie J's like, well, what are you doing for the enduros, mate? What are you? And I said, oh, no idea. And it was Monday morning. He goes. Um, you know, Dean Orr will call you in the morning and I'll put me on a plane, went and met them Tuesday, signed a deal for the Enduros literally uh, a few days later, uh, which was pretty cool, which then started the, the DJR journey. And then you, most people think of you doing the Enduros that year and then you became main game, but everyone forgets you did a, you did a weekend in what is now Super 2 where they wheeled you out in an old AU Falcon at Ipswich and I think you probably could have had a win or two there, but Dean Canto was fighting for the series and I think you might have helped him as a bit of a rear gunner. But what did that weekend do for you where everyone had seen and heard of you overseas and what you'd been doing in F3 and you'd rocked up and done a little bit of V8s late the year before in a team that wasn't a front runner, but then you, you it's a bit of flavour of the month, flavour of the week, flavour of the weekend. You run on the podium, you run at the front in the... It was the HPDC series back yeah. in 2005. <laughs> What happens then? Does the phone light up? I tell you, like I got, you know, I, I look at the sport from from many ways and and many angles, and uh, you know, I'm grateful for everything I've had. But it is a crazy industry where, uh, if you're on the right end of perception and you catch the right wave at the right moment, it's amazing what can happen. So I even look to other industries, whether it be Formula One or you could be a pop star. Do you know what I mean? Like how quick your life can change. And if you get on the right end of a Formula One deal, like you're just this normal kid. Right guy, right, right place, place, right, right time, time. And you can be on the wrong end of it. When no matter you what you do, you say, you just, you <laughs> cannot take a trick. Um, but yeah, I remember from that point of the Grand Prix, I had an enduro deal, but it was the first time in my life. Um, I had a bit of A1 GP that I did. Um, kept me busy, but it was four or five months there where I wasn't racing I was driver training around the country doing a bit of work to get my, you know, a little bit of pocket money in just to live. And um, I was ringing around teams and no one was really interested, you know. It was sort of, I'm like, oh, mate, can I come in and, you know, just have a coffee, introduce myself. Ah, no, mate, you'll be right. And uh, it's just the way it is. No one wants to know you, you know. And uh, But anyway, I was DJ. I was doing some tests with them. And I even remember, though, this is who I was. I'm just a student of the sport. But I remember the first time I rocked up at, you know, a test day at Queensland Raceway with DJ and just seeing the 17 Falcons sitting there, which I don't know if it's lost on people these days. I know Scotty's pretty respectful of the history. But I remember sitting in that thing for the first time driving it. I mean, mind you, I'd, I'd driven a Formula 1 car at this stage. But the respect I had to sit in a number 17 Dick Johnson Racing Falcon, I was just like, this is amazing. Like, this is the bee's knees of a V8 supercar. That's certainly, that's, that's genuinely what I thought. And I, I was loving it, being part of a big operation, although they hadn't won in V8s for quite a while. I remember uh, being super respectful and in awe of my position there, even intimidated by some of the people I was around. Um, and then, yeah, they all of a sudden, after I was pretty quick at some tests and they wanted to run me with Stevie J instead of pairing Stevie and Cito up. And I remember thinking, wow, like I can do a quick lap around QR, but 
jeepers i'm pretty green in some other areas here i'm still missing gears and locking wheels and still you know full tanks you know all the stuff you got to do to become a good v8 driver but uh, they thought we'll run run you in this uh, au at qr and um that changed everything for me you know they scraped the car together it had been in the museum i think only they really knew what parts they'd put in the car but I just remember having my own V8 for the weekend and I loved it. It was just because I, I could learn so much that weekend. But I just happened to be competitive. I think my schooling in England prepared me well. I think the car was set up pretty well anyway. I mean, Canto was in the BF Falcon, Warren Luff, uh, Macro. I mean, there were some guys, some good guys in that going for then. the series. But the old, uh, the car was, was, from what I've gathered, was quite good. And we did a reverse grid race. And I mean, I was pretty... It was ingrained in me to be aggressive racing in Europe for these years. You didn't sit back. Your race craft was good. You knew when to grab opportunities. And I just had a good weekend racing where I charged through the field. Uh, the last race, I remember dive bombing for the lead, a pretty big move on Luffy, I think, for memory, and was just leading the thing quite comfortably. Obviously, uh, Dino was going for the championship, so I, I played the, uh, the the team game there and, and uh, you know, helped him get that round win. But... Um, yeah, it was an amazing weekend where things changed. From that moment on, that perception wave I was just talking about, without so the, doing anything different. I'm like, I am the same driver I was last Thursday. And next thing I had four contract offers to be in the V8 Supercar main game the following year. Uh, what, pretty much it, right in front of me. Within a week, the next day. Within that week. Ringing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Literally Monday morning. Literally so the Monday who's, morning. Who's ringing? Because it's, it's long enough ago that you can talk openly uh, about this now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I was in touch with people, but it just really fast-forwarded the the process. So at that stage, I mean, DGR were interested, but there was a lot of water to go under the bridge. But that was just an enduro gig. There was just no an enduro, deal beyond But that. they then heard word that I'd been at Oran Park sitting down with Ross and Jimmy Stone. Who were losing Marcus Ambrose Losing at the Ambrose, that's right. Courtney was coming home from Japan, but there was still certainly an opportunity there. Um, there was FPR seat. There was Roland Dane. I'd already gone and met Roland. Um, you know, just before then, he was just doing his due diligence, meeting young guys. Uh, there was Tasman seat, uh, Kevin Murphy. Um, which, was, are, which was your mate's? Which See, meant Jamie, Jamie were best mates at this, you know, still are, but we were really close mates then. You know, I was following him that year at Tasman. I was so pumped for him that he was able to show his stuff and put some big performances in. Um, but, yeah, after that weekend, it all just all just erupted. We heard Monday Ross Stone wanted to meet again. Um, you know, so all, all the people throwing contracts at you, basically. met Tasman, I remember, but they had JR. They were trying to get Stephen Richards from Perkins and then Jamie, but then they literally offered me a contract. I'm like, well, so you got JR locked in. I'm like, well, what about, what about, what if you get Richo? Because he was a big uncertainty at that stage for memory. What are you going to do? It's like, oh, well, it's, it's your seat, you know? And uh, I'm like, well, Jamie's here. And it was, not anymore. <laughs> that was how ruthless it was. I remember they didn't really know how it was going to work out, musical chairs, but they, they, they wanted something. And I was pretty unproven, to be honest. But it was just the flavour of the month. No one wanted to miss the potential next Marcus Ambrose or, you know, whatever it was. Um, so that was a crazy process. And the DJR caught wind of this. And it was, you know, they really fast-forwarded the program and to uh, to get me in there. And they offered me a three-year deal. And but that was – the great irony of that was that they had a contracted driver. That's right. Glenn Seaton had a two-year deal for two, – uh, 2006 was the second year. So – out of all of this, so this is not a Will and a Glenn thing or a Glenn and a Will thing. You replaced Glenn Seaton and that deal retired him out of full-time driving, which was a team decision. They went and mm. did that, not you. But 
uh, you know, they, they had a guy, but then they went, oh, here's this other young guy. He might be the next wave we need to get on here. Everyone's struggling to keep their heads above water. I've now been a part of a similar deal with when Scafie finished up, um, but Glenn Seaton, I mean, I'm just, in, you know, He's a hero, you know, legend. I'm so respectful of the old days. But it's a cutthroat industry. I mean, you've got to do – there's nothing about me and Glenn. Like, I was, I remember going to test days and being able to just listen to Glenn's feedback and just, you know, so, uh, so respectful of, you know, of Glenn and what he'd achieved. But at the end of the day, you got to do what you got to do. And, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I don't get into the nitty-gritty, but I remember hearing secondhand that, you know, he'd just be paid out and – that's that. And I was told, don't you worry about it, Will. Um, you know, we'll, we'll make it happen. And it was, I remember, I do actually vividly remember um, a couple of tough phone calls where, you know, I was just waiting. To, they were just having to sort their stuff out before they could actually offer me something. And um, it was really none of my business, that side of things. But yeah, there was a deal put to me, which I thought as a young rookie at my stage in my career was, it was like, wow, okay, three year deal guaranteed. And a pretty good deal for what I figured, um, which sort of blew me away. And it was, uh, yeah, inevitably what happened um, in the end, but it took a little while to get the deal um, get the deal done. So what was it that said, uh, let's sign the DJR deal, let's go there? Why there? Because at the time they weren't travelling mm. too flash compared to a Stones or a Triple Eight or, or anyone else. Why Was that the only one that actually went on the table or was it a case of... You chose them for a certain reason. What was the story? Um, well, there was the no, there was a Tasman deal on the table. There was certainly uh, very strong interest from Stones and FPR, and then Triple Eight. It sounds like at the time FPR. Were everyone was to playing everyone. off everyone. everyone. Was there, everyone's on. Well, with they everyone were because no one yeah. knew who was doing what. So Jamie was there in limbo. Frosty was around. Um, you know, myself around, and I think everyone was chatting to everyone. Um, but basically. Uh, yeah, I remember rocking up at Sandown at that stage, just knowing the DJR deal was the proper, you know, I was I was at the team, I liked the team, a legendary team, you know, some big plans in the making. And yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a no-brainer, that opportunity on paper. Um, and I thought, yeah, they hadn't been that great, but um, it could be a good place for me to, to shine personally learn the ropes which i needed to do i had so much to learn in v8 supercar racing um and it was on the table before the enduros where my confidence i should have been thinking you know it's only gonna um increase my value but i actually wasn't that confident because i know the perception game and i yeah i'd done the right things at the right moments but i wasn't sure i'd get in and just nail it you know i, I was thinking what if i throw the thing in the fence at bathurst and all these deals are off the table um so it was more of just you know, just trying to get my future secured, and uh, while I was on the wave of perception that I talk about, and I remember rocking up at Sandown, hadn't even raced yet, and I don't know what had changed, but I remember um, it was a meeting with Roland, which effectively nearly, um, you know, nearly got me offered uh, the drive there. Uh, but I effectively shook the hands at at um, at DJR, so far down the road without actually putting ink on paper, um, and I, I was still thinking, I'm better to learn my ropes with a team that's not expected to win the first race. Instead of going up next to Lounsey, um, I remember thinking, you know, it could end my career. I wasn't ready to go in at that stage. I might have been, but I'd, I think I think I had a lot to learn, and my plan came together, three years, um, and when I got my shot with the big team, I wanted to make sure I could capitalise. But the, what's a nilly? deal with triple eight you, you know talking hey we, we want you we'd like to have you 
what's a nilly deal? Well, from, from what I from yeah yeah effectively I yeah we got told that said yeah they they're keen to do a deal so it wasn't me I was driving the car um, I think it was Dad for memory had met him uh, RD and uh, yeah I, I'd have to go back and exactly get the exact words but effectively got told that yeah pretty much they'd, they'd like to do a deal um, but at that stage uh, I think you know we were as I said we were. Without being ink on paper, we were You're a DJ committed. I'd head, done so. the right thing. My head had negotiated. They'd done the big decisions uh, that they had to do to clear that space. and uh, So it never went too far. I was, it was a fledgling conversation where I gather I was pretty much told there was an opportunity there, which I didn't expect. Um, and uh, But I, I still I was comfortable with, with my decision. So you do three years at DJR, a year of learning, uh, 2007, the Jim Beam sponsorship comes along and you guys finish on the podium at Bathurst, which is your first podium up there, Stevie's first podium up there. First podium I think the team had had in a long time because it had been a really dry run. Uh, Adrian Burgess turns up as the team manager. Uh, Charlie Schwerkelt buys in, just solidifies the base because it was a bit shaky there. Time's got a bit tough. You win at Eastern Creek in 08 and obviously um, the HRT, HRT deal, it's hard to say fast, flows on from there. But tell me about your time at DJR and how tough were things really? Because behind the scenes, the business was really struggling and on the outside, it didn't look as bad. But uh, tell me what it was like inside there because I take it that it was pretty tough. Yeah, I mean, I, st- I wasn't privy to a lot of the you know, background stuff. Um, for me, it was still shiny bells and whistles um, on the outside particularly in 2006, but, you know, through time you understand a bit more as to the limited resources and budget we had being spent on the cars. Um, And that was sort of – that 06 was the last of the DJR car, if you like, where all the componentry and running gear was all our own in-house. You could see, yeah, the cars, the backing we had on the cars with some new business ventures Dick had. And, you know, I think it was a, yeah, tough time for him and – the way everything went down you could see that they were in dire straits and uh, but in the same time uh you know we'd been able to attract jim beam for the next year so again for me i was kept out of all the politics um you know we were able to upgrade the car we had adrian on board you know jim beam which is great sponsorship great brand and we were able to take a big step forward in 07 but for most of that year you know financially um you know you'd hear on the grapevine and when that didn't trouble me too much with it, but all of a sudden you'd hear the rumours and you could hear the stress that was going on. Uh, yeah, and they did pretty well keeping the joint running as it was, and there was always hope with that team that it was going to be saved. You know, an icon like DJ and whatever the reasons were, there was always something on the horizon that was going to save the day, and uh, it was enough where it never bothered me too much. There were periods in 07 there, though, where obviously times were very tough and Jim Beam stepped in a few times and uh, was able to make my payments and things like that when I'm being told there may not be a team the next year. And, you know, so you're always wondering, well, what's going to happen? Here I go again. How on earth have I ended up in this situation again after everything in Europe? Team dynamic, I thought everything was good. All turned to pass. DJ Dick Johnson Racing, you know, and then you, you didn't want to believe it. I was so I love the people. I was close with the family. I was loving it, and then you're hearing all this again. Like I'm like, what is this motorsport deal? Like what on earth's going on here? But I was in a fortunate position again, where I had a contract and I was a paid professional. And fortunately, as 07 went on, although things were so dire, I gather, um, you know, I was still 
at a very close knit with the team. So I was always a big part of the furniture. You know, we'd really made progress as a team and there was so much potential for us going forwards, which, you know, as I said, that late 07, that Bathurst podium was the tension you saw in all our faces well, was I, huge because well, it was a crucial time of the you, team. You probably don't remember this because you were too busy watching Stevie in that last stint. Um, I vividly, I don't want to insert myself in the story here, but I was there and I saw it, so I know it's right. Um, I was working for seven in the pit lane for the first time that year and they asked me to go and get a grab with Dick in those last, what was it, 20 laps mm. while it's Lowndes, Johnson, Courtney, Murphy, a snaking trail of cars on a slippery track. One of the best finishes to a Bathurst 1000 you've ever seen. If you haven't watched it for a while, go and dig out mm. your, your DVDs or your videos to have a look at it. Um, and I said, I can't find him. Mm. He's not here. Of course he's there. He's Dick Johnson. His son's maybe going to win Bathurst. I said, he's not here. And I went and asked, I think Adrian Burgess at the time picked a, a quiet moment to ask. And I found out he could not bear to watch. Mm. Mm. He was out the back. Yeah. Like he couldn't watch. It was like that. It was a... It was, as I said, I, I can't speak for well, DJ. Not, and not, just they... because, not just because his son was fighting for yeah. the, the win of the race that made him, mm. but because of the background. The, yeah, the joint course. was just about stuff. Like it you was were running at that on point, a smell of an oily rag, Yeah, really. there was some performance stuff we were doing well, but there was other factors that I think were, yeah, very, very tricky times. And um, that weekend, that car, that's still one of my most memorable Bathursts in a car. I'd lo- That was, in my opinion... Those years were the last of the old school V8s. Today's cars are a very particular way. They don't feel like that brutal old manhandling beast. That car that day, though, H pattern, big engine, big grunt, heavier car. And I just remember the rhythm I had in that Jim Beam Zero, Coke Zero, you know, liveried car that day with Stevie and I was just, I had the best rhythm in that car all day. I never missed a gear. I absolutely, to me, as a kid growing up watching V8s at Bathurst, that car that day was what it was all about. And I've never really felt that again, uh, driving around there. It's a bit of a different flow these days in the way the cars are a bit of a, a confused, bloody confused GT car with a V8 supercar. They don't give me that quite that brutal sort of wrestling feeling. Um but, yeah, great car, great day, and I think the Johns, they're such a close family as well, and I think, you know, which I really respected, you know, and Dick, um, you know, so wanted his son to do well, and, um, you know, Stevie was driving really well that week, and you could see the, the weight Steve had on his shoulders every time he went to Bathurst was just it's huge. It's actually a travesty he's still not going back there to this day because he's such a he's a gun driver. Like Stevie was a great driver, particularly at Bathurst, rock solid every time. And the weight he carried uh, on himself at that track, and then we'd put such a good day together, and uh, we're in that position at the end. And you could just see, you know, had much Dick wanted also his son to do well and his team to do well. And I really reckon that's where the stress was on that day. And um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, pretty full on timing. It was a big day. It was a very big day. Now, around that time, I'm going to take that period and we'll cover HRT shortly and how you end up at um, the factory team replacing the retiring Mark Scaife. But it's around this time that you meet a little girl from Western Australia who these days so many of our followers know as Rihanna Crean, Supercars Pit Lane reporter. Um, she's your fiancé as well. I'm really interested in this in how do you define your professional and personal relationships at the racetrack when 
sometimes the last thing you want is someone sticking a microphone under your ear or under your nose after you've just ended up in the fence or had a drama. But how is it when it's your own fiancé sometimes doing this? How do you guys deal with that situation? It's such an interesting and unique relationship in any form of sport. Yeah, it is. Um, we've been together a long time now and, uh, you know, Ree's always made it very clear that she's a pretty driven individual. Um, she was never coming – she was never comfortable coming to the track as, as my girlfriend. You know, there were times there – I remember I was when I won my first round at Eastern Creek, I flew her in Sunday morning because there was a chance I might win the round and she was there that day. And that was the only real periods where she was, you know – coming as my girlfriend of the track you know i met her in v8 supercars she was miss v8 supercar in 2006 took me a full 12 months to uh to, to get her to send me a text message back but uh, <laughs> <laughs> came through with the goods don't know how but um but uh, yeah she was always hard working whether it be in her nursing degree um her uni studies and then you know her big screen work for all those years where she was just doing it for practice on the side and and uh you know she put in the hard yards and to get to the positions where she is today so i've always just been nothing but respectful of her job and she i can just see i just know Ree that she hates conflicting personal and professional so i'd never Really like to put her in an uncomfortable position, um, you know, where she's seen to have any favouritism or any awkwardness around me because she treats her stuff very professionally. So I'm always pretty respectful of that. All jokes aside, there's been a few jokes and a bit of funny banter here and there, which we're a bit more relaxed with these days. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I certainly don't. Uh, but no, no, I just I like to see her professionally do well and I like to give her good content or I don't like to burn her or every now and then. It's, like, it's good to give a bit of a joke because I think people find that entertaining as well. I do remember that one day you ended up in the fence at Adelaide with Erebus and she was trying to interview <laughs> you and you didn't want to know about it. That was probably the most awkward well, one. Well, literally, remember. I mean, it was my first race at Erebus and I'd gone in the fence at turn eight and, you know, it was, yeah, I was gutted. You know, I remember I was just seething and I got out of the car and so I just got to walk to the truck just to cool down for a minute and I just remember hearing, actually, any any partner, you know, you got the, the, the girlfriend or the, the missus voice in the ear, you know, will, will. And so I'll just ignore it. Like she can follow me, you know, she'll meet me in the truck. And I'm just, I don't want to talk to anyone. I've just got to get out of here. And then I just remember hearing this, we're live on channel seven right now. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been burning her for three times. And then it's, you know, it's Rihanna going, please give me this interview. Don't burn me. And then I just turned around pretty sheepish. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah no worries. Uh, we've talked about, uh, uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Don't do that again. Don't do that again. <laughs> we've talked about some of the, the cars you've driven over the Years, and you talked about your love of that, that Jim Beam car. We're big at V8 Sleuth on the old cars, the race history, as you well know. If you could go back and buy one of your old V8 supercars and have it sticking you know, on display somewhere, I'll let you have two if you have to pick two, <laughs> but what, what would you pick? I mean, you've won Bathurst twice. Do Bathurst winners hold the, the number one place for you or is it a, a first win car or is it, you know, you've got to pick. Which one are you going to pick to have to keep? Uh Good. Isn't it funny that, yep, from my, my business mind, um, yeah, and the money, only and car money. I'd ever own is my Bathurst winners. Money's not an option, by the way. You and can they have were amazing want. days. Uh, but what gave me the most sentimental connection with a race car, I'm going to say my DJR chassis, which I had for three years. So nothing really in 06 stands out too much. Is what gave it, me that connection. It, it was the Dick Dastardly Wacky Racer car <laughs> there for right. a while. Oh, we had some good days late in the year, but now 07, there were some times where 
I just love driving that thing. We had a great motor. DJ are known for their motors. The BF Falcon, slipper in a straight line. Uh, but, yeah, just had some great days in that thing, some great races. We were never really the quickest car. But, yeah, my first win at Eastern Creek, um, one at Winton, I remember that day, the Bathurst Podium 07. Um, yeah, that, that car, it's just the 0708, my, my Falcon, uh, Jim Beam Falcon. And I've got to say my, my 2012 Trading Post FPR Falcon, you know, scored many pole positions in it, heaps of wins and podiums. That to me, although I finished second in the championship in 09, I was fourth that year, but I can sit here now and say there was 900 points I gave away. That was leading Bathurst in 12, leading race one at the Gold Coast 600, where I put in the fence on my outlap. We won the next day. Leading race one, Homebush, broke a steering arm in the fence. I won the next day. There was 900 points. Although I finished fourth in the championship, that was the year that I could have won the championship and, you know, we were a genuine contender. So that that car, every time I look at it, yeah, it's got a special place it, in my heart. It's still going around in the Kumo Super 3 Series, I think, with Matthew White's team. So, yeah. hey, we could do a deal with it, finish with it and get it back for you if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. You never know. I don't know. See how, let's see how good we get it looking. But, yeah, I, I was at one with that thing in 2012. I was really, really at one with that car. And I think that car was called, because Trading Post was a sponsor, it was called Kate. Now, yeah. don't, not to be confused with Jamie Winkup's <laughs> Commodore that got called Will Kate. and Case, mate. Will and <laughs> Case. They just got married in 2012. That's, that's exactly why. That's I think exactly it was a trading post from. competition, yeah. and that was the winning um, the winning entrance. There so you go. That is – yeah, we love to talk about the <laughs> nicknames of old cars, and, and that was that one. So it's an yeah. interesting one that you pick because um, normally I think a lot of people would look to – Bathurst winning cars or first race winning cars or the like. So, yeah, really interesting. I would interesting. say Chassis 6 HRT. I mean, that was a that was a good car, Noonzy. Uh, but then it just hated me in 2010. It, it, lo- was just, it loved you in 09. I 09. had six rounds in it in 2010 to the point where I just wanted to throw the thing in the tip. Looking back, I would happily have Chassis 6 now sitting in its 09 Bathurst livery. But a race car, it's, it's like a partner, do you know what I mean? And when they're good to you, you just absolutely love them. And then when they're bad to you it's uh it's a horrible it's a horrible place to be when you're not at one with you in your relationship <laughs> well, one, one of the cars though that has never escaped your family's um hold is your old formula ford though your yeah. 2001 van diemen so that's the car i know we're backtracking a bit here but we tend to just jump around on this show um that you won the formula ford championship in some bloke called wing cup won it the next year in that car um, I think Michael Trimble drove it, and he did win a race or two here or there in the Formula Ford series. And did James Davis and your cousin end up having a little steer somewhere along the line? Maybe, no, maybe not. He was in the ninety. He was in an older car, but re- the fact is that car has stayed in your family. Absolutely, yeah. And mm-hmm. can we see it back in its Melbourne yeah, no, colours? Actually, one that's, that's, that is a plan and a uh, yeah something we're putting action on at the moment. It is a uh, planning process and um, something Mick Ritter has agreed to to do himself personally with us um, because sentimentally it's a you know it's a it means a lot to him as well I mean those years with Mick and Sonic uh, were absolutely unbelievable like it was effectively Sonic's very early days infancy uh, Mick was the only full-time person yeah, we built that car with so much pride it was his first championship um, and we're just the memories we had together at that time were, were just yeah, just incredible. So 50 years of Formula Ford. Um, now, I think it's good timing to get the thing up and running. Mick said he'd, he would like to have the privilege of doing it, um, which, you know, as I said, I won the championship. We leased it to Wink Up in 02. He won the championship. Wink Up wants to buy the thing back, but, 
yeah, the price. No, there'd be no price you could put on that thing to uh, what, to, not to even sell. A, not even a wing cup tax on top of yeah, it. Yeah, well, the... exactly. No, it'd be a good tax. Same with our other car that we own, the '95 Van Diemen, which was my first Formula Ford and Alex's, and that was Garth's '97 championship winning car. Which again, Garth's always trying to buy that back. So we've got some cool Formula Fords, but the O1, uh, we're definitely going to get that running in uh, O1 livery. It's just whether I put the zip down the center and do a wing cup O2 on the other side. Um, We'll see, we'll see about that. That's, that's not sure about that yet. Do you put the champion number one on it or the old number six on it? Yeah, probably number six. Probably Nat, dad was always number six. You know, as a kid growing up, dad loved number six. Um, ironically, Wink Up was always number six in go-karts. So even when I was battling him at FPR in number six, he was always like, you bastard, you've got my number. I love number six. Um, so, yeah, I mean, six... I only was six because I think I was sixth in the 2000 National Championship. That's how it worked. But it was also my dad's number. Lex, my grandfather, was number four. Alex was number four at Stone Brothers. I was six. They're, they're the two sentimental numbers to us. But, uh, yeah, I put number one on it, like you said, for one round after I'd won the championship and uh, end up sticking the thing in the fence at Dandy Road at Sandown. So I think that's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's as far as I've ever got to driving a number one on a race car. Well, it was pretty rare that there was ever a number one on a Formula Ford because under the rules, you weren't allowed to go back to Formula Ford. You had to move on. You had to get out of there. So it was a pretty rare occasion where someone could run the number one on a, a right. Formula Ford at the time. Uh, we talked about Jamie Winkup. We are going to catch up with Jamie Winkup on the V8 Sleuth podcast. We've sort of covered him off in little bits and pieces here of the sliding doors um, scenario of different teams and different stuff. What's your best Winkup story that you can actually tell us? Oh, gosh, it's too many. Too many. Best Winkup story? What do you reckon? What do you reckon, Noons? No, we, I mean... What do people don't know about him? Or what do people think about him that they've got their thoughts wrong about him on perhaps? Oh, everything really. I mean, Jamie's – it's hard to explain. I suppose professional Jamie is in some aspects can be seen as selfish, uh, but it's not. It's not. It's any athlete that devotes their life to anything. How do you not be? I mean, you've got to do what's right for yourself. You know, and uh, he's put an enormous amount of effort into doing what he, uh, applying his trade and doing it the best of he can. And he's a, you know, he's a he's a he's a go getter. He always has been. Um, works hard, prepares hard, um, works hard with his team. He's a hands on sort of bloke. He's not a prima donna. He's he's a team player. Um, yeah, he can come across across ruthless, I suppose, at times. Um, <clears throat> But that is that's what you got to that's what you got to do. So you can only really respect that. Um, Jamie's yeah, he's a, he's a standard hard-working Aussie guy. You know, I know he's a superstar now and all these championships. But he wants his trackies on. He wants to be by the river in his caravan, caravan drinking a Jimmy <laughs> can and going wakeboarding. You know, he's he's pretty simple in many aspects. Um, you know, speak to anyone, any moment. If you saw him on holidays. Um, Jamie's Jamie. He's very simple, uh, lovely family. You know, um, it's where he comes from, and uh, he just he, he keeps it simple. You know, he just wants to drive a race car fast and make the race car go fast. And uh, yeah, it can be misunderstood. You see that as a great mate. That one minute ago we were two kids trying everything to get into a sport, and you look up to everyone, and the next you blink of an eye, here we are, 2019, and in the process you see, you know, mate getting you know, copying it or being hammered or even myself at times. And that's where you truly do understand, right, what of that's justified, what's deserved and what's just nature, you know, you can't control a lot of things and you can only be who you are at the end of the day, but hopefully learn 
learn from you know learn from mistakes and try and come across as good as you can but you got to be true to yourself and i think i think he's always been pretty true to himself and you can't really control backlash so that's part one in the books thank you again once more to will davison for sitting down with us at v8 sleuth headquarters stay tuned for part two of our chat with will where he talks about his holden racing team years driving for ford performance racing in erebus your couch racer questions and his crack at our v8 sleuth top 10 shootout Keep an eye on the website, vhsleuth.com.au and our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages for when it comes out too. Until then, we'll catch you next time on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Doric. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.